Are you frustrated with your spiritual life? I heard a no. Let's go. Do you feel powerless over certain sins in your life? Do you live a supernatural life? Let me ask those again, because you're likely still trying to find your Bible and notebook and wonder why I'm being so depressing to start off. <laughs> Are you frustrated with your Christian life? Do you ever go, man, there, there's got to be a little bit more to this than just semi-regular church attendance? Do you ever feel powerless over certain sins in your life, the language of the New Testament, these sins that so easily beset us, whether you bring into the worship service with you today, man, sins that you just can't shake, addictions you can't shake, burdens you can't drop? And do you live a supernatural life? Maybe you come and things are good. Family's good, time of the word's good, tithing's regular. Church attendance is spot on. Things are trending up and to the right if you were to map them out on a map, but that's a problem. They're good, but not supernatural. Those questions were adapted from Jerry Bridges, and they're phenomenal because I think at the heart of these questions is the simple question that if, if we're serious and we're honest, we struggle with, and it's this, is there more? If you're like me, you sometimes feel a dissonance between what you sing and what you live. The words on the screen and the reality in our heart are often miles away. Some of you are exhausted. Some of you are spiritually hungry. Some of you are spiritually apathetic. Some of you come today with a friend who invited you and you're not quite sure about all this Jesus stuff. Or some of you have just been here for a long time and you're kind of monotonously going through the routine. Are you frustrated with your Christian life? Do you feel powerless over certain sins in your life? And do you live a supernatural life? Well, good morning. After all that, y'all doing well? My name's Tim Hunter. I get the the honor and privilege of leading our Crossroads uh, College and Young Adults group. We meet over on the corner, so we like to say, you know, place in the corner. And uh, just thrilled and honored and privileged to get to to be here this morning with you and share God's word. Thankful for Pastor Trailer giving me the opportunity. Nothing but honor to him and um, the great shepherd and leader and pastor he is to us. We trust he's getting refreshed with his family. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to deliver a message today entitled, Gospel Practice, People of Depth in a World of Dark. 2 Timothy 2. So in 2 Timothy 2, Paul the Apostle. Anyone heard of Paul before? Yep. Yeah, he's, he's kind of famous in the Christian s- circles, right? Uh, he's the mentor here. I like to say he's like the Mr. Miyagi. Any Karate Kid fans in the house? Oh, come on. How can, some of you are like, I only read the Bible. It's like, yeah, okay, we know. Your Netflix queue tells you differently. Um, Mr. Miyagi, he's like the the older, wise mentor here. I mean, he's the legend of the Jesus movement in the New Testament. He's planted tons of churches. He's he's, uh, written a majority of the New Testament. And then Timothy, who he's writing to, is kind of like the Daniel LaRusso. I mean, he's kind of talented, but he's a little inexperienced. And he really needs someone older to shape and form him into the leader. But he's now the 
pastor in Ephesus, which Ephesus is this very influential while also secular city. So what Paul is doing, if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, is he's basically giving a wax-on, wax-off vision of church leadership in Ephesus. I mean, he's just, he's just giving Timothy everything he knows. If you read through there, he's teaching, you got to pray this way, you got to preach this way, this is what church is about, this is how you got to live, this is what the elders you select need to look like, this is what deacons are like. It's fascinating stuff. And then we get to chapter 2, and Paul begins to paint for Timothy a picture of the life he's actually supposed to practice. He goes, Timothy, you got to be more than a preacher, you got to be a person of depth. See, Paul never wanted Timothy to be just the preacher. Paul wanted Timothy to be a practitioner of the power of Christ in a city. And here's why. If Timothy's just a preacher, can the church, everybody imitate that? No. But if he's a practitioner and lives a life of depth, the rest of the church can step into this vision of life. So in short, if you're taking notes, Paul is basically setting forth a a vision of the kind of Christians, the kind of Christians who aren't shallow, the kind of people who who are growing in Jesus and becoming people of depth, and the goal is that through these people, these Jesus people, these deep disciples, the church, families, and the city would be transformed. This is a lifestyle passage. It's a lifestyle passage. We're going to see six different steps to stepping into a lifestyle of depth in this passage. And here's the question to God is, what does it look like to practice the gospel together in a city? What does it be to be about it? What, what does it mean to move past belief but to really be about it? To be one of those people who, who's a person of depth. In the city of dark, Paul is giving Timothy a template for what it looks like to be a person of depth in a city of dark. Let's read Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll continue through verse 9. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I love this passage because, you know, there's no fine print in this passage. You ever met someone before who's trying to, like, sell you something? They're like, it's really good, it's really nice, and then you get fine print, and there's, like, $200 payments bi-monthly for, like, 10 years. You're like, I thought I was buying Cutco knives. It's like, no, you didn't read the fine print. Sometimes we can do that with Christianity. We can soft sell. Say, hey, this is, it's fine. But Paul goes, look, man, if you're going to be about it, if you're going to be a man of depth, I'm going to say to you guys, if you want to be a man, a woman of depth in Jesus, this is it. It's all on the line here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So how do we step into this? Number one, six steps. Become a student. Verse one, it says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, like I said, he's exhorting this young leader here. 
And he starts off, he goes, Timothy, to be strong, you've got to be weak. He goes, Timothy, before you continue, understand you have not outgrown your need for dependence. The language in this text is what scholars would call a divine passive, meaning Timothy is receiving something here from the Lord, not attaining something here from his own strength. This is something Timothy must receive, not primarily attain. Paul doesn't start this chapter by pushing Timothy to listen to the voice inside of his head or the the feelings inside of his heart or to follow his hopes and dreams. He goes, Timothy, receive, receive, receive grace. It's his language of union with Christ, of being connected with Jesus, of cooperation. This is not something Timothy creates. You don't create grace, you cooperate with the grace that God gives. Paul's giving an important reminder to Timothy to start off, to become a student, and what he's saying is you've got to sit at the feet of Jesus. If you want to move forward at all, it starts with being weak, with at his feet. He goes, Timothy, your hope isn't in your pedigree. Your hope isn't in your, isn't in your training. Your hope is in your union with Jesus. Son, get strong by receiving. And church family, hear me this morning. We don't ever outgrow our need for dependence. Like, you don't level up past surrender. You don't level up past neediness. No, you continue to go deeper into need and dependence and surrender. Sometimes when we think about grace, talking about verse 1, we can think of it like it's, like if you're watching a movie or a play, um, if you're, you know, kind of distinguished. I don't, I don't watch movies, I watch plays, right? You know, you, you got the opening scene and you got the closing scene. Sometimes that's what we think about grace. We're like, man, grace is a great opening scene to my life. It's what gets me into the kingdom of God, right? At the beginning of your journey with Jesus, when you bow the knee to Christ, some of you this morning may need to do this in just a few minutes, right? The first time you come to Jesus and, man, would you save me in my sins? Would you forgive me? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you change me, right? It's a good opening scene. And then some of us go, well, and then it's also good for the end, when the credits roll, when we pass away, when we die, right? It gets us into heaven, But friends, can I remind us this morning that grace in Jesus is not just the opening scene or the closing scene, it's the entire plot line. It's the entire foundation upon which everything must flow. It's not something we need when we start to follow Jesus and then when we die, it's every single day. Receive the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Become strong by becoming weak. A student shows us deep dependence. It's the first step of becoming a person of depth in a world of dark to humble yourself and become weak. Number two, become a teacher. Become a teacher. Verse number two, it says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now at this point, you're like, look, I can be the the student, teacher's another game. And here's the thing, teaching many times in Scripture is talking about someone, right, publicly proclaiming the Word, or like an Apostle Paul or Timothy, or like Pastor Trailer, week after week, he's proclaiming the Word for the body of Christ. But we also see the New Testament, every believer is called to be a teacher, to train up others, to disciple them, to uh, lead them into their growth in Jesus. And I want to encourage you and then challenge you from this. Colossians 3 says, we're all called to teach and admonish each other. I want to give you an encouragement. That's the nice part. I want to give you the challenge. That's the hard part. Here it is. The encouragement is, this is not overly complicated. 
Look back down at verse 2. It says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. It's simple. Hey, Timothy, you heard some stuff from me. You learned some stuff from me. I was there. You take it. Give it to other people. We can all do that, right? Learn from Jesus. Learn from people. Take it. Pass it along. It's called life-on-life discipleship. That's what it is. All you need to do to be a teacher is to be one step ahead of the person you're seeking to disciple. You can do it, but here's the challenge. This means you've got to take your own spiritual growth seriously. That's the challenge this morning. You've got to grow past infanthood and being a spiritual toddler or spiritual adolescent. You've got to grow. Here's what Hebrews 5 says. For though by the, listen to this. This is a hard passage, but listen. For though by this time, and this is written to the whole church. Keep that in mind. This isn't written to a pastor's conference. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here's the truth from Hebrews, and it's the truth that Paul is teaching Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Someone else, write this down, somebody else somewhere is depending on you to grow. To not grow is to let someone else down who desperately needs Christ. Sometimes in our, our walk, we think of, we, we think of the, our, our race, our journey with Jesus, like it's just us solo on, like running a race, and we're doing everything. You know, we got the cramp, we're trying to get to the end, but we're like, if I can just make it and cross the finish line, I've succeeded. But it's not the biblical vision. The biblical vision is not a solo race, it's a relay race. So as you run and as you stumble and as you fight forward, the goal isn't primarily to get you across the finish line, it's to hand the baton off so that the next person can run their race well. Do you see how that works? So to not run your race well and growing in Jesus is to let the person down who desperately needs the baton. Someone else is depending on you to spiritual goal. That's what Paul's teaching Timothy. Timothy, you've got to pass it along, man. You don't hoard it. You pass it along. As I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of someone in our own community who knows a thing or two about teaching. Uh, Mrs. Ava Sturgeon, she leads our Woman at Olive, is doing a tremendous job with that. If you're a lady at this church, you would agree with that. And, uh, but before she's leading Woman at Olive, she was a Pace High School teacher for 30 years. Some of you in here, you may have received like a C- minus from her before, okay? I'm not trying to trigger you right now. You're like... <laughs> No, she was a phenomenal teacher for 30 years. And I said, look, can I just ask you a few questions about teaching, right? This is, you would understand this. Um, So not all of it made into the sermon, but there's a couple quotes I want you to hear. I asked her about what motivated her. I said, what what motivates you to teach and deposit the truth to other people, to pass it along? She says this, listen, because it seems like she would have read my notes, but she didn't. But she's really agreeing with my point I just made. She says this, don't we realize that we're a vital link connecting the wisdom of those going before us with the need for that wisdom in the coming generation? Relay race. Vital link. Someone, somewhere is depending on you. I said, I said that's phenomenal. I said, uh, what, what's the touchdown? What's the goal? What gives you joy as a teacher? This is interesting, and this is so beautiful because it lines up with verse 2. 
So the best compliment from a student at graduation is when they say, Mrs. Sturgeon, you've taught me everything I need for the next level. I don't need you anymore. That's it right there. Entrust to others who will then pass it along. You see that? This is what we see with Paul to Timothy. Timothy, it's your turn to go, Pastor. This is what we see with Jesus and the disciples. Disciples, it's time, your turn to go. This is what we see all through the New Testament with older men teaching younger men and, and, and older women teaching younger women. A teacher shows us relational multiplication to multiply what God's given us through disciple-making teaching. Is there someone in your life you could say that about? Are you a teacher? We want to be people of depth in a world of darkness, people who transform a city. We've got to be about this. Number three, become a soldier. Look at verses three and four. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the, told, the soldier right here, verses three and four, he says, Timothy, you've got to be focused. I mean, you don't have time for all these other things. And, and like I said before, this is, there's no fine print. It's just all... It, he goes, you're going to suffer a lot. Because Timothy, an invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to suffer. So again, I sat down with someone in our church who's an expert in this field, Wayne Forbush. He teaches a connection group here, book by book. He's an incredible man. He uh, served in the Marines, was awarded a distinguished flying cross, led a large staff as a commander, all these things he will not brag about. And, um, but he's incredible. So I said, I, we sat down at Panera Bread, I said, I said, man, you just teach me everything. Just tell me about your experiences, give me wisdom. And I filled up like two pages with great notes. But the thing I walked away with that I couldn't help as I pondered this passage is the suffering he went through. And I said, man, I don't get it. Make this make sense. Why do you and these other, why did they willingly put yourself through that suffering? You put your body through suffering, you put your mind through suffering, you put your emotions through suffering. I'm like, it doesn't, why would you want to do this? What keeps you going? And he said this, it's all about the mission. Accomplishing the mission was the number one priority. I wasn't thinking about what was going on at home. I wasn't thinking about politics or what people at home were saying. I was thinking about the brother I wanted to save and the mission I was given. And I say, amen. That is exactly what Paul is teaching Timothy here. Look at verse 4. No soldier gets involved with civilian pursuits. <coughs> Excuse me. We need to take a look and say, are we focused on the mission? Some of us, we've got to move past staying away from what's bad, staying away from what's wicked, staying away from what's evil, and we need to start considering what is helping me accomplish the mission, what is feeding the mission I've been given, what is focusing me on the prize as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a grandfather, as a disciple of Jesus, as a soldier of Jesus Christ. The truth on this Sunday morning is this. Some of us are consumed with what is evil and wicked. Some of us are consumed with what distracts, and you're not focused on the mission. You've got civilian pursuits that take up the entire space of your life. Pastor John Tyson said it this way, if you live like a civilian in a war zone, all you will become is a casualty. Some of you men, you're casualties this morning because you're not focused on the mission. 
You've been playing around like a civilian. Some of you ladies, you come in, man, you're a casualty. You're not focused on the mission. You're distracted. Some of you high schoolers, man, you're, you're going to be a soldier. You're going to step into the mission. College students, young adults, man, be a soldier. You're, you're focused on this. You're focused on that. You're distracted. Don't get entangled with civilian pursuits. But then he goes, the aim of, I love this part. He says, the aim of the soldier is to please the one who enlisted him. It isn't just shame, Timothy. He goes, remember who called you. Remember who enlisted you. You're God's man. You're God's woman. He called you. He enlisted you. He filled you with his spirit. He saved you with his blood. He gave you the church to belong. He gave you the scriptures to believe. He gave you everything you need. Remember, you didn't just come here to church as someone to sit down in a pew. You were called and enlisted and recruited and saved and redeemed by the captain of the army. Remember who enlisted you. Your aim should be to please the one who called you into the mission. A soldier focuses relentlessly on the mission. This is what it means to be a person of depth in a world of darkness. Number four, become an athlete. Become an athlete. Now, athletics is a bit of a sore spot right now. I heard a coach somewhere, some, he retired. Um, and, who was that again? Was it um, Nicholas? I, I don't Pete Carroll? I saw a funny meme. So Bill Belichick this week retired, and Nick Saban did, and so did Pete Carroll. And if you're a football fan, you understand one of those is not like the others. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> one of those is like, dude, let's, let's go. Um, it's funny. So I'm a huge New England Patriots fan. I'm from New England, grew up there. And uh, so Bill Belichick um, was amicably and together, you know, amicably made a decision with the Patriots that his time was over. You know what that's code for? Boy got fired. <laughs> he just got straight up. They hired a new coach the next day. You know, it's just so so athletics can like they consume, right? We, we watch athletics, we cheer for athletics, we get our emotions involved. But listen to what Paul's saying here in verse five about an athlete. He says, An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So this is a, this is discipline language. This is disciplining yourself. He goes, Timothy, you got to learn about the athlete. He disciplines. This is a lifestyle. There's plays to be run. There's practices to be had. There's early mornings. There's late nights. There's nutrition. Discipline can get a bad rap in Christianity. And I think because there's two primary false views of discipline. Number one is dismissive. It's like, I don't need that. You ever heard, I don't need any of that discipline. I'm free in Jesus. You ever heard about that before? Say, man, I'm good. Nah, don't come in with your Bible plan. I'm just going to, you know, be on a rooftop somewhere. And here's the thing. That sounds good, but here's the truth. Slavery to your own desires and sin patterns is not freedom. Nothing is as enslaving as deeply ingrained patterns of sin. So we don't want to be dismissive because that's just going to lead us into more bondage, but we also don't want to be domineering. Right, this is someone who beats others and themselves over the head with their disciplines, right? You're like eating, you're out to eat with them, and you just, you start to dig in because the appetizer looks good, and they're like, you didn't pray over the meal. And you're like, I'm sorry, technically in ancient Israel, they would pray after the meal to give, no, we pray before, you know, and it's just like, 
you're terrifying me. Like, relax, you're domineering, you know? So I think, I think we see those two extremes, right? We see the people are just like, man, it's all about Jesus. I don't need to be disciplined. On the other side, we're like, I don't know. I don't want to be beat over the head with a checklist, right? But discipline in the New Testament is equivalent to freedom. It's the pathway into freedom. You don't discipline yourself. You don't get in the game. Man, man, if you don't discipline yourself to get up and read your Bible, you're not going to be the spiritual leader of your home. Women, if we don't discipline ourselves to be women of prayer, you're not going to be able to pass that along to the next generation. Without discipline, we're simply slaves to our own whims, desires, and addictions. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Right there. It's right there. It's not an option. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So discipline for the follower of Jesus, for the person who goes, I want to grow as a person of depth, is an opportunity. It's an invitation. I love what Pastor Trey Van Camp says. He says, it's not about marking off tallies for God. It's about marking off time with God. That's what discipline's about. An athlete shows his discipline training. Number five, become a farmer. Verse six, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So here, Paul and the farmer, he's teaching us the law of sowing and reaping. Here, here's, here's the law of sowing and reaping. You have to plant, here, here it is. You have to plant the right things at the right time. Right things, right time. What are the right things? Well, for us in this context, it's spiritual things, kingdom things, godly things. Right things. What's the right time? Now. <laughs> now, like today. If we don't plant now, we won't get fruit later. Does that make sense? So some of us, we come today, and we're planting the wrong things. We're planting sin. We're planting apathy. We're planting distraction. You need to hear the word of the Lord, the farmer, the person of depth, the believer goes, I'm going to rise up to be all that Jesus has called me to be. He goes, I'm going to plant the right things today. I'm going to plant scripture reading. I'm going to plant prayers with my spouse. I'm going to plant generosity. I'm going to plant rest. I'm going to plant gospel sharing, right? Right things. But then some of us were like, man, I got all the right things. I've got notebooks filled. I am, you know, I, I've been in like 15 different Bible studies. When I was in Awana, I memorized every verse there was. So they had to like start having me re- memorize the Apocrypha. I mean, that's how into it I was. But you're always talking, but you're always talking about what you're going to plant. And I'm, I'm really going to get into it. I'm going to get a good routine with my Bible. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. I bought a new Bible. You know, or I'm going to share the gospel with my coworker. I'm telling you, one of these days, like, he's going to ask me why you smile so much, and, you know, you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it on him. Or, you know, I'm really going to start praying. I really, right now things are, I'm really going to start, I'm going to start, I'm going to start tithing, but right now things are a little, right things, right time, now. Does that make sense? That's the law of sowing and reaping. So the farmer teaches us the law of intentional planting. Some of us today, in a few seconds, we're going to have to make decisions about what we're going to intentionally plant, who we're going to become, what type of legacy we want to have with our families and our children and our church and our city. The farmer shows us intentional planting. And lastly, the last and the sixth step is this, become obsessed with Jesus. 
Look at verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This passage is hard, it's challenging, it calls us up into something, it raises the bar, but you've got to understand it starts with Jesus in verse 1, and it ends with Jesus in verse 9. Do you see that in the text? You've got to come to Jesus for grace, and the whole time you've got to remember Him. Here's the truth, obsession with Jesus, total focus, reliance on Him, it reminds us it's all worth it. Man, if we see Him clearly, we're, we're willing to plant, we're willing to train, we're willing to focus on the mission, we're willing to pass along truth to the next generation. Willpower or resolutions fail. We know this. Some of us, we just failed like a day ago with their 2024 resolutions. Willpower or resolutions fail. The power of Jesus and the sustaining grace of Him does not. Look at what he says about Jesus. He says, look, Christ is powerful. He says in the text, he's risen from the dead. Timothy, if you want to be a person of death, remember the powerful Christ. He says, he's prophesied. He's the offspring of David. And he's preached. He's preached in my gospel. So I want to do what Paul is doing to Timothy, and I want to take a second for us to remember Jesus Christ. Can I remind you about Jesus? Remember Jesus Christ. See his humble birth at a backwoods manger in a little town in Israel. See his humility. The king of glory stepping down to serve humanity. See him as the offspring of David, the king prophesied centuries before. See his growth as a young man, wowing the scholars in the temple at the age of 12. See his hiddenness for 30 years, tucked away in a little backwoods town with a family and a job and no fame. See his baptism. See him come from the waters with total favor from the Father spoken over him. See him go to the desert and battle the Satan in the wilderness and come out victorious. The only one, by the way, who ever went into that wilderness and came out sinless. Uh, see him, his ministry, see him call his disciples, see him wake up early and pray to the Father, see him wipe tears from the adulterous woman, see him multiply the fishes and loaves, feeding the masses, see him heal the leper, open blind eyes, make the deaf to hear and the spiritually bound to burst forth in life. See his perfect reliance on the Holy Spirit. See him cast out demons out of souls who have been racked in bondage for years. See his joy as he eats with sinners. See his boldness as he confronts corruption. See his calmness as he takes a nap in the middle of a storm, and then with one simple sentence calms the raging sea. See his white-hot desire for the Father to be worshipped in sincerity as he scatters those who would make a mockery of his Father's house. See him pray for those who would betray him. See him arrested and backstabbed by one of his closest friends. See him on the cross, bruised, broken, bloodied, betrayed, and beaten on the cross for your sin. See him buried after he breathed his last. See him bursting forth from the grave, beating death. See him ascending to the throne of God at the Father's right hand, seated as Lord and King, in one hand holding a key that opens death and hell and Hades, in the other hand a key that opens the door to your redemption and your healing. Church, all the Baptists, remember Jesus Christ. 
Remember him when life is good and laughter is around the table. Remember him when it's hard and there's tears in the pillow. Remember him when temptation is so strong it seems to give you no way out. Remember him when the darkness seems to fold over you in thickness that's too thick to walk through, when the doctor's report or the pregnancy test or the bank statement brings back news that you did not want to hear, remember Jesus Christ. Remember him when you're speechless at the beauty of a sunrise or overcome with joy at the birth of a new baby in the world or the marriage of a child. Remember him in the calm and quiet mornings as you sip your coffee. Remember him when the day is hectic with back-to-back meetings. Remember him with your coworkers. Remember him graveside. Remember him bedside in the hospital. Remember him on Mondays and Tuesdays and Fridays and Thursdays and Sundays. Remember him when you wake up, when you pause for lunch, and when your head hits the pillow. Become obsessed with Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Never stop looking at Jesus Christ, for he is the one from which everything else will flow. And you see the confidence just brimming from Paul here. He goes, Timothy, in verses 8 and 9, I'm in prison. I'm in prison. But the Word of God is not bound. And you know what his confidence flows from? It's not that he was a perfect farmer who always planted the right seeds. It's not that he was the best soldier who never lost a battle. It's not that he was the perfect athlete who never missed training. His hope and his joy and his confidence flowed from the fact that he remembered Jesus Christ. Not that he was a perfect man, but that he had a perfect Savior. Not that he was a powerful uh, apostle, but that he had a powerful Savior. That's the truth. And here's the big idea I want us to go home with today. God's people practicing the gospel together transforms families, churches, and cities. If we get serious about the vision that Paul lays out in this text, it will transform families and churches and cities. I'm, I'm believing today that, that some, there's going to be family legacies that are transformed today through a decision made that I'm going to be a farmer who plants what's good in my family and what's glorifying to God. There's going to be disciples made from those of you who go, man, I, I'm sick of sitting on the sidelines. I'm going to be a teacher. There's going to be people who come to Christ with someone who goes, I am done with civilian pursuits. I'm all about the mission. But then to others of you, if you're honest, here's the struggle. Because you hear all that, and then for some of you, you go, Tim, that sounds great. That sounds amazing. But I can barely make it through what I have right now. I can barely make it through my week. And that's what I want to encourage you, that it all flows from grace. And all flows from the body, and it all flows from these things that Harlan talked about, connection groups and togetherness and the body. I'll tell you a story about when I tried to step into a journey that was hard and I tried to go deep. I made the mistake of deciding that I was going to go hang out with John Tyner and try and walk 50 miles. (laughs) Bad mistake. Bad mistake. Here's why. This guy, he is literally a modern-day King David. I mean, he's a warrior. He might do an Iron Man and kill a lion on one hand, and then he's a poet. He's going to, like, play the, the ivory keys and, and you know, s- serenade his wife, Angie, and lead us in a war. I mean, so, so I'm like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do that. No, you don't go walk 50 miles with the warrior poet and come out alive. Well, I guess I am alive, but. So here's what happened. I'm walking. Jack Siler's there, and uh, Reggie Tolls, and Josh Witten, and, and, and I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm ready to do this. And uh, what, what starts to happen is, and uh, 
I start to pay the penalty in the words of Jack Seiler. He, he gave me this pregame speech that was very intimidating. It was about paying the penalty and pain and start to limp. And what's happening is my entire feet are breaking down. They're developing blisters and it's all these terrible things. And I'm like, I can't do this. I don't, but, but I'm trying to continue on. And, and, and Jack's literally multiple times draining out and doing surgery on these blisters. And, it's, and then at one point, I remember this, was, this, this really broke my spirit. I'm there and we're on this bench like five miles past Pensacola Beach. And uh, this is what's happened. They're all looking at my feet. And, and kind of John looks over at Reggie, and Reggie looks at Jack, and Jack looks at Josh, and they all go, dude, has anyone told you you've got like the biggest big toes? <laughs> and I'm like, that's how you encourage this battling soldier right here? And so I go home later, I, I talk to my wife Andrea, I'm like, Did, and she goes, baby, I just want you to be confident. And I'm like, well, apparently I've got, you know, so, so we're having a good time, but eventually we come to the end, and they're like, they're like dude, you, you gotta give up. And I give up. And I walked 31 miles, and I'm, it's discouraging, and I'd failed. But I learned something that day about growing in Jesus and stepping forward and walking with Him. You need people around you who can pick you up, who can encourage you, who can have a little fun with you, hopefully not roast on your, your feet. <laughs> beside the point. But the truth I learned is that together, I walked 31 miles more than I would have if I walked alone. 